0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all and for the time being will change the sound of our program just a bit.
2: On today's program, we'll bring you some of the highlights from the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts and the Mayo News Network coverage of the pandemic.
1: You're invited to follow along during the week by downloading Mayo Clinic Q&A from your favorite podcast provider. You'll also find more COVID-19 coverage at newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org.
2: Thanks for joining us and let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And
2: I'm Tracy McRae. Well, in
1: sticking with our theme of COVID, all COVID-19, almost all the time, (laughs) (laughs) our in-studio guest today is another infectious disease expert and president of the Mayo Clinic staff, Dr. Stacey Rizza. Welcome, Dr. Rizza.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
2: It's good to see you again. How has this pandemic affected the work that you're doing every
3: day? Oh, dramatically. So as an infectious disease physician, we usually see patients in the outpatient setting as well as in the inpatient setting, meaning in the hospitals. Because we have to enforce the physical distancing, and we're trying to use that term more than social distancing now, we've prioritized the most urgent patients that need to be seen. And so that means if somebody does not have an urgent medical issue, we're transferring their care to either phone visits or video visits, or sometimes even just having them come back at a later date when we're able to actually see them in person. In the hospital, we're also, from the infectious disease standpoint, trying to see patients more virtually. Because we want to make sure all our infectious disease physicians are doing the many other jobs I'll tell you about in just a second. So we're relying heavily on the heroes on the front line who are actually the primary care docs, the critical care docs, the pulmonologist, our emergency department physicians and nurses and health care providers who are actually there taking care of the patients. Infectious disease physicians work in many different areas, including infection prevention and control, so essentially coming up with the procedures and protocols on how to keep our patients and employees safe in the workforce, and also in other areas of designing the management of patients who come in with the infection and the experimental drug trials and research initiatives. I've been working on the management as well as the research initiatives as you can imagine, everybody working around the clock to get the latest and greatest available to our patients as quickly as we can. Are you?
1: uh, You said you were doing a fair number of telephone visits and virtual visits. How are those working out?
3: So they're working well for infectious disease so far, and it's likely because infectious disease has been dabbling in this for a while, actually. We have had public health grants and initiatives that have allowed us to do asynchronous e-consults in the areas of tuberculosis and HIV around the country and around the world for more than six or seven years. So we've already started with the e-consults. We've been doing some virtual visits within our healthcare system and in some areas within our HIV practice for a number of years as well. So we already had a little bit of what I would call practice. Now, I think most of the medical world has had to kind of you know, hop, skip, and jump very quickly to action. And we certainly are learning as we go as well. But at least we had had a teeny bit of practice before this started.
1: Are a fair number of staff working from home?
3: Many are. And that's that's an excellent point because we're asking that any staff who can do work where they don't actually have to be on the medical campus do so virtually or electronically from their home to decrease the number of people who are actually here on the medical campus and could potentially become infected themselves or unintentionally infect somebody else.
1: Now, when you go home at the end of the day, you actually come in uh, to public places. Do you take your clothes off, your shoes (laughs) off to to protect your family? I mean, can this virus live on clothing?
3: So that's an excellent question that we get asked often, and maybe I'll begin by just giving a little background on how the virus is actually transmitted before going into the answer. So the virus is transmitted by what we call respiratory droplets, meaning if I cough or sneeze on somebody or something, the virus is in the little teeny particle droplet that if I happen to cough next to my neighbor on their face, on their hand, and they breathed it in, they could become infected. If I cough or sneeze onto a surface that they then touch and then they rub their nose or their eyes or their mouth, then they could become infected. So when you think of it that way, you think what is it that you need to protect to keep yourself from becoming infected? And it's predominantly your hands and anything that touches or goes in your mouth, your nose, or your eyes. We very rarely do that with our clothes. We very rarely sort of rub our face on our sleeves other than children maybe and sometimes we do unintentionally well and we're all coughing into our elbows exactly. though so coughing on our coughing sleeves. absolutely can so what we encourage people to do and what I do is exactly as you're alluding to Tracy is I wash my hands before I leave work I wash my hands as soon as I get back in any clothing that I've worn for work particularly like a blazer or a jacket I either wash if it's able to be washed or I put aside And then I sometimes do wear it back to work, but I don't touch it. It doesn't go anywhere near anybody else's face. I would not you touch my anything that I have touched afterwards. And then the one thing I do and I recommend to people is after I change clothes at the end of the day, I wash my hands. So anything that's touched that clothing gets washed.
1: So washing or dry cleaning will get rid of the virus.
3: So we know that the virus is, viruses are killed by detergents, and detergents are bleach and soap. And that's why it's always recommended that, if possible, to wash your hands with warm water and soap for at least 20 seconds. Because we know that'll kill the virus. And bleach absolutely kills the virus. Um, so washing your clothes in warm water and soap and drying it in a, heat, a dryer that's warm will kill the virus. Dry cleaning is a chemical process. And most of those chemicals that are used in traditional, professional commercial dry cleaning should kill the virus but again we don't think that you get infected as a fomite meaning just putting on an infected piece of clothing won't infect you through your skin it would be if you were then to touch it or as tracy said put it somebody else's shirt Mm -hmm. or something close to your face that's how you would get infected
2: We know that um, one of your levels of expertise and special interest is HIV, AIDS. Uh, Is there anything that we learned during the AIDS epidemic back in the 80s that is helping today?
3: That's an excellent question. I think think we always learn from every one of these experiences, and I have no doubt we are absolutely going to learn from this experience. The HIV world has already started to talk about that, is let's look back and let's use lessons learned. Context. Exactly. (laughs) HIV transmitted a little differently. The numbers obviously are far exceed coronavirus. The deaths far exceed coronavirus at this point. Um, But we can still look back and use some of those experiences to help us now. And I think the one that starts the list is we have to be careful of denial. Denial never helps. It didn't help to think, oh, this isn't that big a deal. Let's ignore it. Let's not talk about it. a small
2: population.
3: Exactly. It's only people far away. It's Mm -hmm. not going to affect us. And that absolutely happened during the HIV epidemic and absolutely slowed down our response. And in many ways, I think the world just wasn't ready to accept this one right away. And denial may have slowed down some of our public health response and other response around the world. Um, The other lesson, I think, is to be very careful of misinformation. And that's why I applaud you all for trying to get strong, unified messages across. There is a lot of misinformation and that can mislead people and can sometimes hurt people. So be very careful about the sources of information and understand that we learn more over time. So it may seem like things are changing and to some people it may feel like public health is, you know, flipping back and forth or government is flipping back and forth. Part of it is we just learn more and know more, and we have to make new decisions. I think we also have to learn that we need to focus more on facts and not fear, and that was very true during the HIV epidemic, and it's very true now. And I also think we just learned that we have to maintain a sense of community, that we have to be there to help each other out. People will get sick. We have to keep others safe. We have to work together to find treatments, cures, public health responses, and we're all in this together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our thanks
1: to Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert and president of the Mayo Clinic staff, Dr. Stacy Reza. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: You know, Tracy, one of the consequences of aging is a decline in the immune system. You're not there yet, but hopefully someday.
2: (laughs) That's right. Older
1: Americans often don't respond as well to new or previously encountered infectious agents like influenza or like coronavirus. And the situation is actually made worse because older Americans, we don't respond as well to vaccinations as younger people do.
2: Joining us on the phone from Mayo Clinic in Arizona to talk about aging and our immune Immune system is immunology researcher Dr. Jessica Lancaster. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much.
1: So good to talk to you especially with the COVID-19 outbreak and so that has something to do obviously with the immune system and if you could before we we talk a little more in depth explain in general terms what we mean by the immune system.
4: The immune system is a collection of different types of cells that are traveling through the blood and into our different body tissues. They are constantly at work, so even when we are not actively sick, they're conducting surveillance, and what they're looking for is different particles that appear to be not of ourselves.
1: Whether they're infections or toxins or cancer, the immune system, uh, when it's healthy, takes care of all of that.
4: When we do find something that's foreign to the body, that is when certain cells will begin to sound an alarm, so to speak, and that's what will launch the immune response against it.
2: So what happens to your immune system and that immune response as a person ages?
4: What is happening is that the cells will initially detect the invader, and then that first wave of defense, uh, which we innate immunity will start the process of inflammation. So in this case, uh, inflammation is a good thing because it's letting the immune system know that something is wrong. And then after that, there are certain cells of the body that are very specialized against different types of pathogens. And so these white blood cells that are specialized will go in and they will begin to clear out the pathogen and allow for recovery to begin afterwards. So what happens with aging, which what we consider is starting around middle age. So about in the late 30s, we have our immune system. It's starting to slow down gradually. But then when we reach the age of 65, the immune system is declining much more sharply.
2: Does that mean it's not as good at doing its job? Or what exactly does that mean?
4: With the aged immune system, there's going to be a decreased overall strength of the immune response. So it's not going to be able to fight off pathogens as fiercely as it can do when it was a younger immune system. And not only is there like a decreased strength of the response, it also takes longer to clear the infection because all the different uh, components of the immune system can't talk together as clearly as before, so you will end up feeling bad for much longer as your immune system is very slowly clearing out the infectious agent.
1: Now, I guess nothing works quite as well when you get a little bit older. Is it true that you are more susceptible to all kinds of different pathogens, so bacteria, viruses, cancer cells, all of them equally, or are you more susceptible in particular to a viral infection as you get older, let's say?
4: As we get older, Uh, our immune system starts to produce fewer of new types of immune cells. We're actually at a deficit against new and novel pathogens that we hadn't encountered before in our life. The immune system is starting to stock up on immune cells that can recall a previous disease that it has encountered because it's placing its bets that it's going to see the same pathogen again rather than something entirely new. So this would apply for either bacteria or viruses, but it's kind of more so for viruses because when you have this new virus, it could be more difficult for the aged immune system to be able to clear it. And that's going to open you up to uh, secondary infections, which usually are in the form of a a bacterial infection. What makes the problem worse is that for some viruses, like the virus that causes COVID-19, the virus prefers to infect cells of the lungs. So the virus is hijacking lung cells in order to make copies of itself. And in doing so, it is rapidly destroying the lung cells. So if one has an aged immune system, it can take a lot longer to clear the virus. And by then, COVID-19 has already inflicted a lot of damage and perhaps destroyed the ability for the lung to function.
2: We've learned, of course, during uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, pandemic, that people who are age, aging and with chronic conditions also have a hard time. Um, So why do the chronic conditions um, affect your immune system?
4: Well, inflammation is a normal part of the immune response. So it is a signal that there's danger in the body and that it is now time for the immune system to fight. Uh, but what happens with a chronic condition is that it, it creates like, like almost a permanent state of inflammation. So the problem is that the danger is never actually cleared and the immune systems can never turn off that danger signal. So what happens with chronic illness is that even to some extent, this also occurs with normal aging is that there's this level of inflammation that always persists as your disease is never rectified, for example, for heart disease or for lung disease. And so since the signal is never turned off, it is really hard for the immune system to get primed up to launch a good immune response against a new threat. Just to kind of illustrate that, um, if you imagine that you were never allowed to have a good night's rest, and instead there's an alarm always going off, you you will have a terrible time trying to wake up and do your job in the morning. And uh, immunologists use the same term of immune systems being exhausted, so meaning that they're unable to perform their function because they've been stimulated for too long. And so, in a sense, the aged immune response, since it has, like, these kind of persistent inflammatory signals which are exacerbated even more when you have a chronic condition, it could be a lot harder for it to kind of bring itself together and fight off a new attack. All
1: right, if you have a healthy lifestyle, let's say you eat right and you exercise, do you still have an aged immune system or you can you slow that process down?
4: To some extent, the answer is yes, you will have an aged immune system. The coordination of the immune response requires this very tight communication among the cells and all these cells are spread out throughout the body and the immune cells are being supported by all the structural cells of the different tissues and different organs of the body but as we age the quality of these supportive cells are wearing out and that means that the immune cells will have now a harder time to talk to each other so unfortunately you could be a you know a 70 year old marathon runner but you can still be knocked down by a cold and need more recovery time however that doesn't mean you shouldn't exercise because having a healthy lifestyle will be the best way to maximize what potential your immune system has. So even though it's not completely clear, aging is causing that low level of inflammation, which is lowering your immunity, but if you can reduce the level of inflammation by getting good night's sleep, by eating nourishing food and not overeating, and also by exercising, then you can reduce that impact of aging on your immune system.
2: So those things that you just listed, getting good sleep, um, eating well, uh, even if you're not, and you said middle age there. So even if you're not even in those categories, can you boost your immune system no matter what your age?
4: Definitely. Uh, It's not going to be this kind of superfood leading to a a rapid boost in the immune system that we would hope for, but it's going to be in a very intangible way where if you can take good care of your health, then you're giving your immune system... best advantage that it can have. So by, you know, getting proper sleep, by uh, eating nourishing foods, and also by not overeating, because um, there are many studies that suggest that obesity and uh, metabolic diseases such as diabetes can also contribute to lower immunity.
2: Are we going to be able to rejuvenate the immune system someday?
4: Uh, There is some evidence out there that our bodies are not just wearing out, and that's the final destiny uh, that we all have. But because there are some other animals that have great immunity throughout their life. What scientists have been starting to speculate is that, you know, perhaps we can find different cell signals that are kind of driving immune decline. And if we can target those, then perhaps we can improve the quality of life so that the elderly can live healthier lives and not just longer lives.
2: Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Jessica Lancaster, Mayo Clinic, Arizona immunology researcher.
4: You
1: very much. Thanks, Dr. Lancaster. Due to the COVID-19 response, the second half of our show will be encore presentations of previously aired programs. Stay with us.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. As far as to-do lists go, quitting smoking could be the most important choice on a smoker's list. Smokers are more likely to develop diseases like lung, throat, and mouth cancer, and they're more likely to die earlier than are people who don't light up. Dr. J. Taylor Hayes, director of the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center, says it's never too late to quit the habit. He asks younger smokers, those younger than 40 years old, if they want to add 10 years to their lives. And if their answer is yes, he says to quit smoking. Quit if you want to avoid the ill health effects of smoking-related issues such as chronic lung disease, heart disease, and lung cancer. If you stop at a young age, he says you can avoid virtually all of them. And he says you'll add years, not just to the length of life, but to your quality of life. As for older smokers, Dr. Hay says it's never too late to stop, make a plan, and stick to it. And that plan should include some counseling, behavioral therapy and medications that will reduce withdrawal and help maintain abstinence. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams
1: welcome everyone to mayo clinic radio i'm dr tom shives and i'm
2: tracy mccray
1: tracy can you imagine losing your voice
2: happens sometimes
1: well it does happen and the vocal cords can stop working and paralysis of the vocal cords occurs when the nerve impulses to your voice box also called your larynx they're disrupted or for some reason and if the nerve doesn't work the vocal cords don't work
2: and that can affect your ability to talk, even breathe. And here to tell us more about vocal cord paralysis is Mayo Clinic Ear, Nose, and Throat specialist Dr. Dale Ekbaum. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Good to have you on the program. So tell us, you know, we take our vocal cords for granted, most of us. Tell us a little bit about the vocal cords.
5: Yeah, they're very complex. You know, um, it's really amazing because the vocal cords. They have many layers to them, and the the outer part of the vocal cords is a vibratory layer that allows you to just you know have that beautiful sound that you can create, whereas the deeper layers are more of a firm ligament, and then there 's muscle beyond that so it 's uh, it's, it's really hard to replicate that you know research wise and everything and, and uh, it 's pretty amazing
1: so they do a couple of things though they allow you to, to speak and to talk, but they also protect. Uh, you from aspirating something, right? Yes. They, I mean, they stay closed, so you when you chew and swallow, it doesn't go down your trachea.
5: Exactly. When you swallow, the vocal cords come together, and they protect your airway. You don't want anything down there because that's aspiration or could result in pneumonia. So that closes down nicely, and then uh, and then you just are able to pass the food along the sides of the larynx down into the esophagus. And so it's pretty neat. Vocal cords, they vibrate anywhere between hundred and to 1, a thousand times a second. So it's it's pretty amazing how fast they're vibrating.
2: When I have laryngitis or if you have a sore throat and you sound hoarse, is that your vocal cords?
5: Yes. The vocal cords typically get swollen when that happens. There's some redness, there's inflammation, and then the voice often deepens a bit and becomes rough with the, with the laryngitis.
1: So what can cause the vocal cords to stop working?
5: Well, yeah. So we see, we see vocal cord paralysis quite a bit in my laryngology clinic. And and uh, there's lots that can, that can cause it. Uh, the number one thing is probably surgery um, of the either anywhere along the course of the nerve that goes to the vocal cord. So skull base surgery, neck surgery, chest surgery, any of that can cause
1: vocal cord paralysis. So, so for whatever reason, that nerve is damaged. Yes. Is that the recurrent laryngeal nerve, that's, as I recall? That's it. And it that's supplies it. Uh, the vocal cord, the muscle of the vocal cords. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And usually this would be on one side
5: yeah usually one side you can have it on both sides but um, typically if it's a surgical thing it's one side um, other causes can be you know tumors you know um, we call neoplasms and anywhere again along the course of that recurrent laryngeal nerve and Put, then, just
1: puts pressure on the nerve
5: and puts pressure on the nerve or infiltrates the nerve you know and and uh, takes away the the movement of that vocal cord and probably the third category so tumors are the the one of the categories surgery is another and then the third category would be this idiopathic or unknown cause where it can be a a virus most likely
1: if it's caused by surgery does does it recover does that nerve recover most of the time or it can actually be cut where it doesn't recover
5: yeah if it's cut it never recovers if it's stretched it can recover maybe half the time or less than half the time so and sometimes recovery can be improvement in voice, but just a more midline position of that vocal cord that's paralyzed. And so it does still doesn't move, but you can get a voice again just by it moving to the middle. Um, so that's how that works.
1: Yeah, and so you uh, have some options. Mm-hmm. If that nerve never recovers, what can you do to restore a, a fairly normal voice? Yeah, so say, say that again. I, I missed the part. You said that if that vocal cord... Uh, doesn't work. If the nerve to that vocal cord on one side is paralyzed, what does your voice sound like? Do you have a voice at all?
5: Yeah. So some people and most people end up having a breathy sound,
1: almost like a voice like this,
5: you have know, a whispery okay. sound to their voice. Some people have rough, rough voice and other other folks um, can have a, a pretty good voice. It really depends on where that, that paralyzed cord ends up. Mm-hmm. If it's more of a lateral or out position, mm-hmm. then the, vocal, the other vocal cord can't connect to it, okay. and then so you have that breathy sound. Whereas if it if it paralyzes and it ends up being more in a middle position, you can actually get closure and can have a voice that is pretty close to normal in some, or at least you know eighty percent.
1: And how do you fix this? How do you solve this problem? Yeah,
5: so there's there's different options. You know, it depends on when it happened. Uh, we do have to. You know, some of these vocal cords uh, start moving again over time. So it can take... When the nerve recovers. Yeah, yep. And so you have to think about waiting anywhere between, you know, nine months to a year. And sometimes you can have recovery even later um, uh, with that. So you don't... We don't do anything permanent in terms of surgery until it's been close to a year but in the meantime we do a lot of vocal cord injections and so that's kind of our temporizing measure some of those end up lasting long term for patients
1: now what is that mean? yeah how does that work
5: yeah so vocal cord in, uh, injections we in- we inject the vocal cord either awake or asleep and we do it with collagen as one material Another material is hyaluronic acid gel. That's called Restylane. So there's different materials with fat sometimes. So there's Does different. Does it materials. change
2: the sound of your voice?
5: Yeah. So then cool. what happens? Yeah, it's amazing because <laughs> it pulls it. It just it just injects into the cord and then pushes it more to that midline position. So the other cord can meet it. So the other cord can meet wow. it. It doesn't cause movement again. It just gets it more to the midline.
1: Uh, yeah. Pretty neat. Yeah. And what about the surgery? What types of surgery do you have available, and when do you choose to employ that?
5: Yeah, so surgery, um, that's after about, after it's been about a year. We uh, start talking about the permanent uh, options that we can do. One of them is an implant. Um, it's called thyroplasty, where you actually carve an implant or layer in an implant. We go and operate, and we actually go into the neck create a little window at the level of the thyroid cartilage and then push this implant in. So again, it pushes the vocal cord more to the middle and then you, the other side can connect to it. And that's a permanent thing. So that's What is that implant. made out of? So that's made out of silastic is one material. Um, Gore-Tex is another material. A ribbon of Gore-Tex is used sometimes. Those are the main two. Wow. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> is Is voice therapy part of this? I mean, either before or after?
5: Yes, yeah, sometimes. It can be. If you have a patient that has fluctuating voice, like if they're more towards the middle, you know, with their vocal cord and they're connecting fairly well, but they say, Boy, the voice is like ninety percent sometimes and fifty percent other times so Well then a speech language pathologist can work with them and and uh and get them to more of that ninety percent more often. They work on the muscles of the neck, the airflow, the resonance of the pharynx, other things to
1: do you ever try to repair that nerve that goes down to the vocal cord?
5: Yes, yeah, we do. Um, some, that's another permanent option. So one is that implant that I was talking about. The other is called re You You can put a, a branch of a nerve that goes to your strap muscles into that nerve that goes to your vocal cord and connect them. It does not allow movement of the cord, but it allows for really nice bulk. And it works well in younger people, especially where the nerve grows fa- back faster. And the bulk um, affects not just an implant pushes right at the level of the vocal cord itself, but like a, a reinnervation will infiltrate all all the nerves that go to all the different muscles around the larynx, you know, that are innervating that uh, that uh, those vocal cords. So, wow. and and what allows it to move open and closed and everything else. So it's pretty it's pretty amazing what that can do.
1: All right, Dr. Dale Ekbaum, he's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon at the Mayo Clinic paralysis of the vocal cords difficult problem but sounds like you've got a lot of options for treatment sure do thanks so much talking about it we'll take a short break when we return we'll discuss the heart condition mitral valve regurgitation
2: you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news
0: network
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCray.
1: There is a condition called mitral valve regurgitation. Big doctor words. sure. Uh, But it's when the mitral valve, which is one of the valves in your heart, doesn't close tightly. And that allows blood to flow backward in your heart. Not a good thing. And the blood, it's going the wrong way. It's backing up instead of going out to the rest of your body. If it's bad enough, it can cause symptoms like make you tired or short of breath. The good news is, it's usually fixable. Right, and we have somebody here who knows how to That's do that.
2: right. Here to explain is Dr. Abdallah El-Sabah, cardiologist. That's a heart specialist from the Mayo Clinic in Florida, Welcome to Rochester, and nice to meet you.
6: Nice to meet you as well. Thank you for having me. Okay. So uh, tell us about the, these valves in the heart. What do they do? Absolutely. So the valves, the role of the valves is to allow, as you alluded, is to allow blood to go from one direction to the other and then close in the second part of the cardiac cycle to prevent blood from going backwards. And this way, the bloodstream and the circulation maintains a uniform or one-way, uh, one-way direction. And uh, that's important to perfuse the organs of the body. And today, we're
1: going to talk about the mitral valve. Tell us a little more about that. It's on the left side of the heart.
6: Exactly. So the mitral valve separates the left upper chamber of the heart from the left lower chamber of the heart. So then the blood gets drained from the lungs into the left upper chamber of the heart, across that mitral valve into the left lower chamber of the heart. And then the left lower chamber of the heart squeezes and the mitral valve closes to prevent it from going backwards to the left upper chamber of the heart and forces it to go forward across the aorta to the rest of the body. And that valve can be damaged for lots of reasons? Exactly. In order to understand what could go wrong with the mitral valve, it's important to understand the anatomy of that mitral valve. So the mitral valve is made of two leaflets, which are basically the the two seals, and they are connected very closely to the left lower chamber and the left upper chamber of the heart. So then you can imagine that anything that could go wrong with the leaflets or with the left upper or left lower chamber of the heart can then lead to a malfunctioning of that mitral valve and then leads it, from, uh, leads it to uh, leak backwards. And, and what happens? is the valve just wear out
1: over time, or are there other conditions that can cause
6: Definitely, it? Definitely, there are multiple, multiple conditions. The most common condition, or what we call primary mitral valve regurgitation, is the, is the problem in the, um, the leaflets themselves. And it, the most common cause of that is a condition called mitral valve prolapse. It's mostly an inherited condition where the mitral valve leaflets are very redundant. And so it starts from young age, and then it can progressively get worse and worse.
2: What do you mean when you say that they're redundant?
6: So the leaflets themselves, uh, the, the tissue of the leaflets, they're longer than it, what should be. So then when the leaflets uh-huh. close, um, there's a gap. And because so they
2: kind of overlap but don't seal correctly.
6: One leaflet overrides the other. Uh-huh. And so, um, so you're that,
2: born that way.
6: It it's not technically born that way. People uh, develop it as the mitral valve grows, and really? uh, so that's kind of how it it happens. It's not they're born with the the genetics to develop it, and then uh, it can progressively get worse and worse. But just the the leaflet tissue itself is prone to that redundancy. If you've had rheumatic fever as a child, can that result in mitral regurgitation? Absolutely. It's one of the uh, it's probably one of the most common causes in the developing countries if not the most common now. Fortunately, we don't see it that we often in this country anymore. anymore. No, so that, that, the, the mechanism here is different, where the, the leaflets get inflamed, and so they retract, and then that's how they get leaky. Ah. So, Is this what, uh, when a doctor uses a stethoscope to listen to my heart, is this what they're listening for? Exactly, the murmur. So the, any, anytime you hear the word murmur, it means that the blood is gushing from one chamber to the other across, um, across a valve. Uh, most commonly. So, and so
1: when you listen with a stethoscope, it should be fairly quiet. You should just hear the lub-dub and not the whoosh.
6: So sometimes we we hear a faint murmur and we call it a functional murmur. It's common in younger people and, uh, and it's common in anemic patients. Um, but anyone who has... Uh, is prone to cardiac disease. Or if, it's, if the murmur is loud, then we have to investigate it further. There anemic, are
1: benign murmurs. Anemic patients, patients who have a low hemoglobin. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Uh, so what do you, how do you make the diagnosis? I mean, obviously, if you hear a murmur, that's a suggestion. But that doesn't tell you exactly what's wrong, does it?
6: No, no, it doesn't. So uh, you, obviously, as you mentioned, it starts with a physical examination. And if the suspicion is there, the next step would be to image using echocardiography. So it's very important um, to, to to get that next step where it's an ultrasound test with a probe over the chest, and we take pictures of that mitral valve, and we use what we call Doppler signals to, to look at the flow of the, the red blood cells inside the heart. And it, that's doing
1: do. an echocardiogram, which is a relatively simple test, no radiation, you could diagnose it pretty definitively.
6: Yes, definitely.
1: And... Uh, If the patient has symptoms, what are those and how bad do they have to be before you decide you need to do something?
6: That's a great question. And in fact, uh, it's one of the major problems that we face with diagnosing and and treating uh, mitral regurgitation because it's important to understand the natural history of of mitral regurgitation. So what happens is that Um, As the blood is leaking, the, the leak is probably mild or moderate to begin with. And so what ends up happening is that left lower chamber of the heart is now receiving blood from the left upper chamber of the heart and then the leaked blood that went up. So it's receiving extra volume of blood. And in order to cope with that, the left lower chamber of the heart then starts to dilate, dilate, and then the function starts dropping. And then at the end of the spectrum is when the symptoms start so it's actually when the symptoms start there might be, might have been irreversible damage it's sometimes mm. too late so it's very important to that any will check up with the uh, with the physicians uh, or the or the primary care team and that's incredibly important because the, the it starts with the murmur and then that's how the close monitoring occurs because we really want to catch it before symptoms start so symptoms start the shortness of breath mainly, lower uh, extremity swelling, fatigue. Um, sometimes atrial fibrillation happens, and it's an irregular heart rate. And, and that's my regurgitation um, uh, is a, one of the causes or one of the uh, contributors to that. Of so oh, an
1: abnormal heart rate. An abnormal
6: heart rate. Is it easy to fix? Um, it depends. And how do <laughs> you do that? So right now we... It depends on the first step. The first step is when we make the diagnosis of the mitral regurgitation, we, we, divide the, we divide the diagnosis into two. The first entity or the first mitral valve regurgitation diagnosis is called primary mitral, mitral regurgitation. And that's a problem with the leaflet itself. Whereas secondary mitral regurgitation is a problem with the muscle of the heart dilating and pulling apart the mitral valve. So the, the treatment differs between the two. If it's a problem with the leaflets or mitral valve, uh, or primary mitral valve regurgitation, what we do now is what we call a hard team approach, meaning that a team of interventional cardiologists, um, echocardiographers, or, and valve specialists, as well as cardiac surgeons, the th- The whole team approaches the patient, and that's a very th- that's a uh, it's a one thing that we're very proud of here at Mayo Clinic, because uh, the treatment differs. It depends on the patient's uh, comorbidities and status, the anatomy of the valve, and the treatment ranges from simply. I mean ranges from a surgery where we can do robotic surgery we could do uh, through a, a, an incision at the side of the chest or through an a sternotomy where we go in the middle of the chest sternum uh, right in front you have to split the chest and go in and fix it exactly that's once so that's the surgical spectrum and we always always aim to repair the valve meaning we leave the the leaflets Intact, but we just, or the surgeon just cuts and, and sutures the leaflets in a way where it, they don't have to remove the mitral valve and, and place a prosthetic valve. That has the best outcomes. Now, uh, obviously, it all depends on the anatomy and the amount of calcium, many other considerations that, that are technical, and a lot of times, and sometimes, the surgeon has to, has to replace the valve. Um, and then, on the other spectrum, if, if a patient is at high risk for surgery, um, we have what we call the mitra clip, where it's a percutaneous device that we go up from the leg, and we grasp the leaflets together, and, and that's a minimally invasive under general anesthesia without any incisions. Now, on the other hand, if it's secondary mitral valve regurgitation, the main focus is to treat the left lower chamber of the heart, which includes medications and um, other therapies like uh, devices or pacemakers that are uh, that synchronize the heart, uh, and then uh, and then if that if the leak remains, a lot of times. When the heart remodels, leaks, the leak goes away. But if it doesn't, then uh, the next step from a recent trial uh, showed that it, the clip actually is helpful in these patients.
1: And if that doesn't work, you actually have to replace the valve. Is it a mechanical valve or is it a tissue valve? Or do you have both?
6: It's a great question. Um, it depends, obviously, on the patient and the age Um and it's because it's on the left side of the heart and it's fairly a, a, a low flow lower flow than across the aorta a lot of surgeons are putting in tissue valves now um, and the second reason is coming that from other humans or cows or where do you get the tissue it's from the outer layer of the cow's heart or the pig's heart okay. and so they rejection it. a problem not a problem but it's postulated because these these valves last about Ten years. Sometimes they degenerate earlier, but the good news is that if that happens in the mitral position, we have a percutaneous option now, where we go from the leg and deploy a transcatheter valve inside that failed bioprosthetic valve.
1: No incisions, except no, in the groin. Except wow, in the groin. pretty amazing. So well, whatever the problem is, you can fix it. I suppose <laughs> mitral regurgitation. Our thanks to abdullah El Sabah, interventional cardiologist, Mayo Clinic in Florida, visiting in Rochester. Good to have you with us.
6: Thank you very much.
2: And that's our program for this week.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.